this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is artist and visual anthropologist Ethan Clark. Well, thank you for having me on. I'm excited to be here and I really appreciate this opportunity. It's actually my first podcast. So Very nice. Yeah, it's um I'm expecting this will be pretty fun. For sure. And everyone's heard the last episode of the Rendering Unconscious podcast was your lecture from Rewriting the Future. So everyone will have heard that already. Awesome. Okay, so there is some context, and I know you put out a bio, um, but just a little background about myself for context. I'm a visual anthropologist. Um who focuses on studying pop culture and art. Um, I'm particularly interested in art as it relates to conflict because we see these massive shifts in artistic movements uh, as a result of conflicts. And generally, we can see the art made about a conflict or a war as a sort of processing mechanism for it. So in my presentation, I talked about the Vietnam War as a case study um, and film specifically as it relates to it. But we also see that that same process happening with movements like expressionism in reaction to World War One or Dadaism as well. Um, you know, with both of those, it was sort of a reaction to the absurdity of war and with expressionism the raw emotion dredged up by such a, a horrific human tragedy um, I'm an artist myself and a lot of the art I, I'm influenced by a lot of things but one of my major fascinations and, and I think influences is World War One trench art so the actual um, physical art that was produced in the trenches during World War One because it's very raw, it's very impactful, it's not censored. And you see that with a lot of street art produced in uh, the Middle East now, uh, murals and that kind of thing. And not just there, you see that in other revolutions and wars too. So anyway, that's just a, a sort of narrative thread that I'm branching off of. Um, I, I didn't even I, know that there was art produced in the trenches. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, um, you know, you have millions and millions of men going out to war and being drafted or volunteering, and a lot of them were artists. Either they were professional artists beforehand or they were amateur artists who did passion projects. And... A great many of them um, actually started in in the trenches, but it wasn't just visual artists. It was poets, it was writers, um, and filmmakers as well. Uh, in fact, it's kind of interesting to think about going back to the history of war and film. Um, these early photographers and videographers going out into battle. I mean, ostensibly as documentarians, 
But at that level, when these mediums were so early, it, it's definitely through an artistic lens. Um, I'm not sure. Did you see Peter Jackson's new project, They Shall Not Grow Old? Mm-mm. So it's a... Um, it's a loosely narrative film, but what he did well, was teamed it, orchestrated uh, the, the project. It wasn't him doing it all solo, but it uses footage and art from World War I, and he and his team went through and compiled it into a cohesive structure. And then they restored all of it. So they recolored everything. Well, I won't say recolored, because most of these weren't in color to begin with. They were either a sort of sepia tone or black and white. They colorized everything. And they also went ahead and added audio. And a lot of this was dubbed over. Um, I don't... Yeah, I don't think any of it was original audio because they just didn't have that. But they brought in uh, choruses to sing, you know, It's a Long Way to Tipperary, and they brought in voice actors who matched the uh, regiments that a lot of these young men came from. It, the focus was on England because Peter Jackson is English, and it was in conjunction with a, um, a British Preservation Society. I, I actually think it was in conjunction with the British government. But they managed to track down where these people would have been from, and they had speech analysts come in, you know, um, lip-reading analysts come in and say, oh, this is what he's saying. Um, and, and they matched, you know, if somebody would have been from Leeds or Lancaster. They got a voice actor with that accent do them. So it was a really, really impressive feat of cinematography and, and, and filmmaking, but also it was a, a really immersive, immersive experience um, of depicting that war. I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah, it's, it's definitely worth a watch. Um, it had a really limited run in the US at first and my friends and I we saw it on that first run and I was shocked I really didn't think that there would be that much of a turnout for it especially outside of the UK but it was packed absolutely packed and it wasn't just older people I I figured it would be people whose grandparents or maybe parents would have fought in World War One but there are a lot of younger people, uh, people younger than myself even, who were quite enthralled being there. And um, yeah, it, it saw a general release. So it's good to know that people care about about history still, that people care about recording this stuff. Because we as need a, to. Yeah. As a preservationist, it's kind of my, <laughs> my fear that people will just kind of lose interest after a while. But I mean, people still care about the, uh, you know, the, the age of sale 
and care about the uh, the Neolithic and care about all these other eras. But I, with recent history, it's one of those things where maybe the the details get muddled, um, and I don't like that because we wish we had all these details when we're studying, say, a colonial settlement, and we just don't. But we have the details now. We just have to preserve them before they literally disappear. Um, I was just talking to a friend who was in the Air Force, and he said that a, a, um, a bunkmate of his, back when he was in the dorms, um, had a massive steamer, str- steamer trunk filled with these photos um, depicting you know the earliest earliest days of flying and early pilots in the Army Air Corps, early uh, pilots in the Signal Corps, and and just all this history on celluloid on, and paper that hadn't been backed up anywhere. And he kept saying, "You have to turn this over to our archivists because the Air Force they have a big thing about archiving." Um, archiving documents and historical preservation. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that, but because the U.S. military is so big, and I'm sure other militaries do this, but a lot of them have divisions specifically focused on historical preservation and archiving. Um, I'm not sure if he ever turned turned it over, but it I wish you did because with a lot of these documents, that's the story. It's my grandfather passed this on to me mm-hmm. and sang in a box and I appreciate it, but I don't want to turn it over because I might not ever get it back. Mm. Yeah. How did you get interested in this kind of niche in the first place? You know, I... Um, I've been thinking about that a lot lately because a friend of mine, we were drawing a couple days ago, and he asked me the same thing. And I think it would be better to say what he thinks was the cause and what I think is the cause. So he knows me really well. And, and sometimes an outside observer is better than an inside observer. And his his reasoning was it seems like my interest is mostly in how can we learn from these tragedies um how can we prevent future conflict by understanding the the conflicts of our past um and i think that's that's about it i a lot of my close relatives we're in the military, mm-hmm. um, so there's definitely a normalization there. And I think, as an American, you have to be aware of that too, because we have a very militarized culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember we spoke in the past, and you said that after spending an extended period of time outside of the U.S., you realize just how in- inculcated our culture is with war and with the military. Um, and of course, the majority of what they do isn't war, but that's their stated purpose. 
Um, so, I think maybe on a subconscious level, I was aware of aware of that abnormality in American culture early on, and I was just fascinated by why is this? Why why is it that we've fetishized this um, other world? It's a little separate, a little disconnected from our reality, especially now. It wasn't as disconnected 60 years ago, 70 years ago. Um, but it is now. Through modernity, we've become less connected to violence and to conflict, but it still comes up in these spots. Because when we were, you know, when we were on the frontier, or in the savannas of Africa. I mean, we, we can go back to before we were even Homo sapiens, to what Homo erectus and Homo habilis were experiencing. Life is hard. Life is very brutal. Um, you know, there's that classic, uh, classic sort of tagline, life is suffering with Buddhism. And what that means isn't that the be-all and end-all of existence should be to suffer. What it means is we should appreciate every step that we have away from the abject suffering of being alone in the woods with no clothes, with no one around you, having to chase down, uh, chase down frogs to eat them. Because that's... that's life in its realist form. Humans are animals, and that's what animals deal with. Um, but we've become separate from that through modernity. There's been a steady separation from the brutality of life. You know, you're not watching your kids get eaten by jaguars anymore. Okay, great. You're not um, you know, you're not having to go to war with other humans over basic resources anymore. Great. You're now uh, creating militaries to do the fighting. A further separation. You're now not even gutting fish or cleaning deer. You're just buying your meat from the store. Um, you're not seeing people get into uh, fights. You know, in the 1800s, you had people, well, you still have this, people shooting each other over petty things. But it was a lot more, and that's, a, that's an interesting sort of difference, too. Because it's become a lot more sanitized. In, you know, the south of Chicago, or around Lincoln Park in Baltimore, people get shot over pocket money. And memorials go up to them, their families grieve, but we don't see the body. Um, we, don't, we don't know who embalmed them. 
or cremated them. Whereas in the 1850s, if somebody got shot over pocket money, which was equally common, um, their family would sit with the body. Uh, there might be a open casket funeral where everyone would come and mourn the body, and, and you still have that to an extent. But and maybe it's a product of mass communication, because we hear about people dying that we would have never known, um, and that depersonalizes them. But we've grown further from that natural state. And I think on the whole, that's kind of a good thing, because that's a very brutal world. And from a humanitarian perspective, it's great that people aren't experiencing you know, abject horror on a constant, uh, at a constant level to a lesser degree. But people still do. People in developing nations do. And people in conflict zones do. And as a first worlder, those conflict zones are where it's most familiar to us. Because we talk to people who've been to them, who've been there, and come back to our cushioned, separated first world. So they really work as a good case study for how these moments of violence and brutality still play out. I think that's my real interest. It's that these offer a window into life as it's been for millions of years that we've grown so separate from. But so many people haven't. So many people still live in very harsh realities. I forgot who said it, but I heard a quote um, that it's always it's always the apocalypse for someone. Like we have these post-apocalyptic movies, and that very much taps into the same thing. It's this uh, fantasy about what if we reset to the savage nature? But it's always the apocalypse for someone. If you go to the favelas of Brazil, it looks like you know a dystopian cyberpunk movie. It, it's you've got wireless routers hanging from wires on the ceiling, and you've got shanty structures, and you've got uh, rampant crime. And you've got people coming face to face with death. It's the same thing with uh, places in in uh, you know, Bangladesh after a natural disaster. It's that's it looks like 28 days later, or it looks like the day after tomorrow. Um, so we have these escapist fantasies of an apocalyptic nature but they are by their very nature a luxury of how sanitized our world is 
Well, that's what's so interesting, too, because you're not only looking at, like, people's experiences who are coming back from these places, but also the entertainment or the film or the documentaries that are made about them and then how that is used to influence the thought of the culture as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, because we, since we're disconnected from these processes, we have to contextualize them somehow. And that's where art fits in. We use art to make sense of big things, boil them down into something that can be digested on a screen or digested on a canvas or digested on a sculpture, um, among other things. Because they're, they're too big to take in otherwise. And that's not to say that you know, it's impossible to grasp, like, the experience of a soldier at war. But it kind of is. I mean, it's impossible to grasp the, um, you know, the feeling of having surgery on your toe, unless you've had it. And, and that's not to minimize it. It's just to say that experiences are only truly experienced by the ones experiencing them, which is, you know, a, a pretty uh, sensible thing, I think. But art comes in and processes those experiences into something that everyone can understand on a certain level. It makes experiences relatable. And getting you know, a bit more focused, that's where films come in. Films offer such a little narrative slice. Um, of a structured reality that helps us understand the unstructured reality. And they never quite do it genuinely. There's always some degree of distortion there. That's to be expected. But they help they help people come to grips with what other people are experiencing that they empathetically want to resonate with but can't because they weren't there. And, you know, sometimes it misses the mark. Like, in Vietnam films, you have the stereotype of the crazy GI, this crazy vet who's been so scarred by his experience that he's basically a ticking time bomb. Now, statistically, that wasn't the case. Most, most vets... Um, did not have mental health issues after war. A lot of them did. About a quarter of them did, which is a big number. Um, but it wasn't everyone. And on top of that, a lot of them were quite happy to have participated in the Vietnam War. Um... But the U.S. wasn't. The U.S. had had this cultural shift where they said, we're not happy that we went into this conflict. So they created this sort of gestalt of the, the, the scarred veteran to basically 
become something onto which we, the American people, would project our fears and insecurities and scars about letting this war happen and letting men go off to and die and letting innumerable civilians die. Um, it was more a reflection on the people consuming the media than the people depicted in it. I think that's always the case. I mean, if you look at old Western films, they always depict, you know, this very simplified, uh, simplified conflict between cowboys and Indians. It's it's always really cut and dry for the most part. Um, of course, you have a lot of a lot of explorations of the noble savage trope thrown in there, but for the most part, it's there's good guys and bad guys, or later there's black hats and white hats. You know, there's the good cowboys who work for the sheriff, and the bad cowboys who work for the land grabber, who is trying to set up oil fields or buy up everyone's cattle. Of course, a lot of those films came out in the late 60s, early 70s, when corporatization was a real fear, a real fear for the American people, um, where you had the government seizing people's homes to build highways, and you had corporations buying up land en masse, buying up farms. So it was a reflection of that. And those earlier films were, of course, a reflection of wanting to kind of whitewash over uh, tragic history. It's a whole lot easier to say there's cowboys and Indians, good guys and bad guys, versus there were settlers who were starving and didn't know what they were getting into, who came in to in contact with a culture that they didn't understand, was familiar with them, who was also very upset about their land uh, being taken, and the settlers felt they were entitled to their land, and the Native Americans felt that they had every right to their land, and they butted heads until conflict came, and then the military came in to orchestrate a grand-scale ethnic cleansing. Um, that's a lot harder to condense into a film. But we have seen that recently, relatively recently. You know, starting in like the I'll say early 90s, you started seeing films depict that more. And of course those were coping mechanisms for us as Americans sort of coming to terms with um, with a collective history. Uh, and and you, you tend to see that with, with most movies. It's really interesting now to see the media coming out regarding the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, it, it followed a similar pattern to a lot of the Vietnam War films. And I think that's because the Vietnam War became so emblematic of a conflict in a foreign land against an insurgent group where we're 
in sort of a stalemate. And we gain ground, but then we lose ground. The population is with us, but they're against us. And it it became sort of an allegory. You know, you hear about every country's Vietnam. You know, Malaysia was Britain's Vietnam. Uh, Algeria was France's Vietnam, right? And Afghanistan was Russia's Vietnam. And then you hear politicians, I mean, while the conflicts were still going on, saying that Afghanistan or Iraq was America's second Vietnam. Mm. A lot of the films reflect that sort of feeling, but there's, there's a different energy to them. Uh, did you ever see Generation Kill? It was this miniseries uh, produced by HBO, and it was based on a real... Hang on. Let me pull up a little reference. It was based on a real book. Um, by Evan Wright, who was an embedded reporter with the Marine Corps 1st Reconnaissance Battalion. It was sent in 2003, and it depicted a... Um, it, it depicted the trials and tribulations of a, I, I think it, I think it focused on one platoon, um, but, oh, hang on, I'm gonna share screen, there we go. So, focused on this one platoon of Marines going through Iraq, and it felt a lot like, felt a lot like Apocalypse Now, um, because you have this increasingly sort of hopeless struggle, and increasing apathy within the, the fighting force that we're, we're watching. But it had it had the distinct difference of being a far more monotonous war. And that's something you hear a lot about veter a lot from veterans about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. That seems to be the, the sort of narrative that's forming there. That there is a lot of hurry up and wait. But what's weird is that's true of every war. It's just being focused on more now. Mm. And I, I don't quite know why that is. Um, but I have, I have some suspicions. You know, a prevailing narrative regarding Iraq and Afghanistan is that they were pointless, right? There are these pointless conflicts. So I think that might be a reflection of it. With Vietnam, we know it was brutal, but especially when media first made was made about, it, we didn't, we hadn't 
created a consensus of pointlessness. So there was still a lot of conflict depicted. Then these these films depicting modern war, it's sort of the character drama and the desperation first and the combat second. And you see that with Jarhead too. Um, Jarhead though was, I just want to double check on this, that, that was about the first Iraq war. Um, yeah. Yeah. But it's a similar, a similar sort of feeling that you're just kind of there. And I there's there's a new form of media too that came out of Iraq and Afghanistan. Well, it came out of veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan and, and people um, watching the war on TV. And it's these short video clips, normally on YouTube, sometimes on LiveLeak, um, where it's combat footage set to music. Mm-hmm. And they served early on. Now, these were being produced right after we went into Afghanistan. Uh, basically, people saw new technology. You had video sharing. Now, uh, YouTube wasn't available until, I want to say, 2006, around there. But you still had video editing technology, right? And you could still sort of spread these short videos set to music really fast. So they um, they put out a plethora plethora of, of these these short clips, and they would show you know bomber crews dropping bombs. They would show people in tanks. They would show it was very jingoistic, um, and it would always be set to really like agro metal, like uh, you, know, you would have it set to Slayer, or you would have it set to uh, Dope. Uh, there's a lot of new metal. A lot of new metal, because that was the, the genre de jour for metal at the time. But a lot of new metal, a lot of thrash metal, and a lot of combat footage. But I recently saw a video by a, a channel on YouTube called War Aesthetics, and I believe this guy is a Canadian serviceman. And he makes these vaporwave retro uh, videos in this format. But they're not they're not so much propaganda pieces. And that's not to say that in their own right these earlier videos weren't art. They just were art with a purpose of spreading propaganda. And propaganda isn't necessarily a bad thing. 
it's kind of become a bad word, but it's spreading your specific ideology through art or through uh, a, a marketing campaign of sorts. It's a neutral thing. But these were propaganda. This, though, is much more introspective art. So the video I'm thinking of specifically is just called, I believe it's just called Iraq 2003. And it's just grainy videotape footage of soldiers doing um, very mundane things. Like, you do see them you do see them in combat. You do see them driving tanks. But they're just kind of, for most of the video, they're just driving. And it's set to the song Brain Stew by Green Day, which is just so perfectly emblematic of, of the period. I mean, the lyrics are, I'm, I'm having trouble trying to sleep, I'm counting sheep but running out. As time ticks by, uh, etc., etc., and it's it's about the sort of desperate, bored plight of a young man. And this video clip that's only about four minutes long—that's what it's about too. It's about the desperate, bored plight of young men who want to see action, who want to be in a, a World War II or Vietnam movie, but aren't. And the the reporters videotaping them aren't trying to make it look like an action movie, like they were in Vietnam. They're just videotaping what they're seeing, which is a bunch of guys driving in Humvees. And towards the end of the video, it, it focuses in on a lot of these clips of guys looking really burnt out, guys walking through um, oil fields on fire at dusk, which is a a hell of an image. I think Jarhead used a similar similar imagery towards the end of it. And it just creates this this environment of absolute exhaustion and boredom. I'll save the link and send it to me so I can include yeah, it and yeah. look at it. Let, let, me, let me go ahead and do that right now. Oh no, it's just called 2003. There we go. But yeah, this guy, he did a lot of other interesting little video clips in the same style where he took, he took the genre um, of these jingoistic war footage clips and he made them not jingoistic but there's still an element of authenticity to it because he's an active duty serviceman but it reflects such a massive cultural shift in how we view conflict versus how we viewed it in 2000 um, we've just become so much more jaded 
afraid to do it. So getting back to something I said earlier regarding us becoming disconnected from conflict. I think we've started to become a little bit more connected with it. Not not with brutality. I think let me put it this way. I think the average person, the average first worlder, I'm, I'm gonna be very specific here, the average first worlder would be far more shocked and disgusted by seeing a dead human being now than they would have been in 1900. However, I think they'd also be far more apathetic and far more dismissive and uncaring of hearing about somebody getting shot than somebody from 1900. So we've become far more comfortable with sanitized violence. Mm -hmm. A lot of it has to do with the proliferation of news media and the proliferation of the 24-hour news cycle where rather than rather than hearing about somebody you might know, somebody from your city dying or a tragedy occurring, um, you know, like a, a, a riverboat capsizing and hundreds of people dying. Rather than hearing about that at a semi-local level, occasionally, but also coming in contact with death, regularly in your own life from hunting or going to the butcher or uh, seeing people at funerals hearing about somebody's kid dying of cholera we constantly we have a constant constant stream of death statistics this many people died in this mass shooting this many people died in this factory collapse this many people died in this bombing um, where we, as, as a culture, I think care a lot less about death, but at the same time we are very disconnected from the physicality of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's weird how we, we don't just see this occurring I mean, it's, it's a, a feedback loop. We don't just see this occurring with how violence is depicted, but with how it's carried out. Think about uh, drone bombings. Mm -hmm. Or increasingly long-range warfare. Since, since the dawn of time, we've gotten further and further from another person with the intent of killing them. You know, we, we were fighting hand-to-hand -hand for thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, actually, 
but even in structured conflict, thousands of years. And then we were shooting at each other at relatively close range. And now you still have street-to-street -street urban fighting, but so much of it now is done through, okay, we know where the enemy is, we're launching an airstrike. Uh, or we know the enemy is over that hill, we're going to shoot at them to try to pin them down or drive them away until we have enough intel on exactly where they are to call in an airstrike. And I mean, to, an ex to a certain extent, war at that scale, that distance, has been going on for a while. I mean, in World War One, in the Civil War, you saw artillery bombardments. And in World War Two, you had bombing runs. But with Without exception, you had high numbers of people coming face-to-face -face in conflict with each other. And you don't see that to the same degree as much anymore. Even in like militia to militia combat. You do have street to street fighting, but a lot of it is technical trucks with mounted guns firing over a hill at each other. And maybe it's hard to get excited about that. Maybe that's why the modern narrative of war in highbrow, pseudo-highbrow media is it's boring. It's, you push a button and somebody dies. Um, yeah, maybe the apathy reflects that detachment. Yeah. yeah. I think it does. You push a button and somebody dies. You go to the store to get your meat. You watch a, a jury uh, sentence somebody to die in 50 years from a fentanyl overdose. There's an extreme degree of detachment to violence now. But and at the same time, then, when they do order these strikes, they have this much bigger range of, like, civilian casualty potential. Because it isn't so, like, hand-to-hand. -hand. It's just like, oh, oops, we, did, we bombed the wrong area, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's not targeted anymore uh, with as much specificity. You did see that in previous conflicts. You saw civilian casualties. But you saw a lot of intentional civilian casualties, mm. tragically enough, in ancient conflicts. You'd see people, or medieval conflicts, you'd see people sacking cities and saying, we're going to kill everyone in here. Um, you don't see as much intentional civilian 
uh, civilian bloodshed, but you see a lot more unintentional, unintentional casualties. Now there were instances of that in every conflict. High, you know, large instances of that in World War II. You had, uh, well, you had the Germans bombing the absolute hell out of England, and you had the U.S. firebombing Dresden, and you had the nuclear bombs uh, being dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But in all of those cases, you were dealing with sort of acceptable civilian losses, where it was it was kind of factored in, um, which is pretty horrific in its own right. That somebody, uh, you know, two hundred thousand miles away, could say, "Well, you don't you don't matter that much, so you're going to die to weaken the nation you happen to be associated with." Mm. And, but you do see it happening a lot unintentionally now. And, and that's, that, that sort of is a new level of detachment and apathy. This is a little bit off topic, but kind of related, but did you see Chernobyl? I didn't. Everyone asks me that. Oh, you have to watch I'm it. Really, really interested in the Cold <laughs> War, and I'm really interested in uh, Soviet states, and I'm interested in Chernobyl itself. I, I've read a lot about it, um, but I haven't seen the series because I just haven't had time. And I would, I would love to. It sometimes is a bit hard for me to watch like miniseries. I, I. I'm very engaged when I read, and I like documentaries and movies because they're they're fast. But it makes me feel um, somewhat unproductive when I'm watching, like binge watching a series. Even if it's something that I'm really interested in, you and even if it's something it. useful, it's only four so, episodes. And Carl's it's only four friends, episodes? The, yeah, it's only four episodes. And Carl's friends, the director. Oh my god! Okay, so we well, have a personal connection, I, I, and you have I to watch do, it. I do have to watch <laughs> it, and I really want to watch it because I know it's good, but it's just hard talking myself into focusing, just focusing on a screen multiple times when I'm not interacting with it. I, I love gaming, but there I get the satisfaction of interacting with the screen. And, and like I said, I love movies because I know there's a short-term um, short commitment to staring at the screen and not messing around, you know, reading something or, or drawing something or mucking about with something totally different. Yeah, um, tell, tell us more about your art. So, yeah, I, I mean, my art is, I'm an illustrator, um, so I, I draw pretty much anything. You can, find, you can find my artwork at Lucid Pixel Consulting. That's my official Instagram page, and it's, it's fairly new. Um, I've had the 
sort of lucid pixel brand for a while. That was my personal Instagram account. But I decided to convert over to a public profile because I said, you know, I I put a lot of effort into this. I may as well put it out there. Mm-hmm. May as well put out what I've got. So most of my artwork is um, of people uh, because I spent a lot of time taking portraiture classes and a lot of time doing uh, art classes focusing on the natural world and organic things. And I really like drawing people. I think maybe it comes from my anthropology background or my athletics background where I like seeing how the body works and I like seeing how different people express themselves and move and costume themselves because there's a big fashion component too. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, a, a lot of my illustrations are of that. But I've been expanding more into sort of conceptual pieces. Um, either objects, imagined objects, or imagined garments, or imagined scenes, um, and, and characters. And a lot of it is influenced by anime and cyberpunk and sci-fi. Um, and a lot of it is also influenced by expressionism and, and, like I said, sort of trench art, and also street art and graffiti art. I actually used to be really, really into street art. Um, and I don't know what, what the statute of limitations is on putting stickers on things, but I, I did that for a while. Um, I would you know, do the classic thing of taking a, uh, a bunch of mailing mailing labels and drawing all over them with Sharpie and then slapping them on things. But I was really, really into street art when I was when I was younger. And I think that's carried over into my my artwork now because it it still has a sort of uh, frenetic feeling. What it taught me to do is communicate stuff fast and effectively um, because with with street art you have to be able to either set it up fast or create it from scratch fast relatively fast you mm-hmm. can't spend nine hours on something yeah don't hesitate yeah so it taught me to embrace being aggressive in my process and being, uh, you know, decisive in my process. One of my early art teachers, he said to me, if you can keep up this pace of productivity, you can do this professionally. Um, And I didn't for a while. I didn't for a while, but I'm trying to now. Um, yeah, so what are you working on now? What are your plans for the future? Or anything else that you want to make sure to mention? So right now, I am doing freelance uh, freelance writing work uh, 
for content writing and for copywriting and any sort of other writing work that anyone might need done. Um, I also do editing and writing tutoring. So contact me either at my, yeah, contact me through my Instagram at lucidpixelconsulting for that. Um, right now, as far as a career move goes, I am very interested in museum work. I've always wanted to work at a museum or gallery, and I have yet to. Um, I have worked as an intern in a bone archive and collection, which was really, really fun. But other than that, I haven't gotten gotten chance to work in a, in a gallery or museum environment. And I, I really, really want to. So if anyone is in Southern California listening and has a job opening at a museum or gallery, I am available and actively looking. And I can, um, I can vouch for him. Thanks. I appreciate that. I, I have a, a pretty heavy mix of anthro and and art and design background mm-hmm. plus a lot of sales experience and and sort of public relations experience and in some of my previous less uh, less glamorous academic work so if you need somebody to uh, help with donor funds or help with curation I, I could do either I'd be happy Happy to be in that environment. So that's my career move. And otherwise, I'm, I'm pretty focused on, on art and, and freelance, freelance consulting and freelance writing and fitness. I've, I've been very, very into weightlifting and taekwondo, and I don't think that's going anywhere. So... That's that's pretty much where I'm at <laughs> developmentally. Great. Well, it's been really fun talking to you. Thank you for having me on. I really, really enjoyed this. It was fun being able to get some of these ideas out into the ether. And, um, yeah, if you want to follow my work, you know where to find it. Yeah, I'll put all the links in the text. And after you watch Chernobyl... We'll have you back on because I want to hear what you think about it. Awesome. Okay, so I have I have work then. <laughs> I'll I'll look into it and uh, yeah, four episodes shouldn't be hard to bang out. Thanks. It's worth it. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with artist and visual anthropologist Ethan Clark. For more, you can find him at Lucid Pixel Consulting. You can also visit our publisher's website, tripart.net, or my website, drvanessasinclair.net.
oysters of the world unite. But not here, not now. We have better things to do. And for your behavior, you will hang from an old tree. A tree not yours. Nor will it ever be. The news is new. Meet before I kick away your support. The last words you hear come from my mouth. Noblesse oblige. <laughs>